This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 33. This is a very special solo show dedicated to the launch of The Anatomy of Prose. It is also a video episode, or I should say the meat and bones of this episode is a video episode in the style of a, I don't know, I guess a official AuthorTube style video. So if you are listening on your podcatcher, then my advice would be if you want to hear all of the intro, stay with the podcast. And then if you want to watch the meat and bones of this, podcast then you can always watch it on YouTube. The YouTube doesn't have all of the intro show notes but yes it is it is on YouTube and there are some silly special effects I suppose that you will be able to see there. Um, so for the purposes of the recording the intro I am recording this on Sunday the 24th of May so a little little under a week before this will air. Okay, so uh, before we begin, I just have an apology to make. My one of my rude neighbours is um, record is playing some extremely loud bassy music. So if you can hear that, I do apologise. Anyway, let's get on with the show. So to last week's question, I asked, what kind of content do you put in your reader funnels? So Caitlin said, great episode, I learned so much. I'm still flailing around a bit with the different types of automation, but I did just put out a survey to see what people want when they open my newsletter. I think my problem is writing a whole new thing just for subscribers. I think it's beneficial to give them that thing that they can't get elsewhere, but on top of all the rest, I'm hoping the survey will shed some light on this. I understand, I get it fully. Um, I also have procrastinated for an awful long time over writing something specific to give away in my mailing list and I don't really know what the blocker is there for me personally. Um, I suspect it's because every time I try and write something small it turns into a fucking novel. So uh, that's generally my problem and I don't really write fast enough to give away whole books though I am hoping to change that a little bit this year. If you wanted any ideas then I am going to be doing an exclusive epilogue that I will be giving away in my automation. So the question of the week this week is what is your favourite literary device? I think I think my favourite literary device is probably the juxtaposition. It's so versatile. You can use it on a macro level. You can use it at a micro sentence level. Um, I love the conflict that it puts into your prose and I love the imagery that it creates as well. So yeah, tell me, what is your favourite literary device? So book recommendation this week is, of course, my book, The Anatomy of Prose, 12 Steps to Sensational Sentences. If you haven't got your copy already, then why? Go grab your copy now. It is on sale. You can get it in ebook, paperback, and hardback, and you can also get the workbook. Um, a few people uh, reach out and ask me about the difference between the workbook and the textbook. And so for anybody else who is curious, the textbook is essentially the main meal. It is the meat on the bones, and it has all of the, uh, 
the information, the lessons, the explanations, the examples. It is, it is the textbook, essentially. The workbook of the anatomy of prose is where you then put those lessons into practice. So the workbook has very short summary explanations. So if you're looking for detailed knowledge on each tip, tactic and trick, then you will be looking to have the textbook. The workbook generally assumes that you have read the textbook, but it isn't a requirement. So you could read the workbook and get by, but you wouldn't necessarily ha have as comprehensive understanding on each literary tool as somebody who had read the textbook. Then in the rest of the workbook, there are um, exercises essentially for you to do to put those lessons into practice. I am a big believer of intentional practice. I do think that uh, passive learning as in reading and not doing anything with it will still have an impact. But I am also a very, very firm believer in needing to put those lessons into practice and do the doing. There is only so much learning you can learn passively, which is why I always create the work books to go along with the textbooks. So yeah, there are lots of, you know, you will be writing, you will be doing writing exercises, you will be doing thinking, and I will pull you through that journey um, of helping you improve your prose. So if you want to know what is in the anatomy of prose, I cover a huge range of topics. I think there's like 123 sub chapters or something, something ridiculous like that. Anyway, uh, but main points, we look at author voice and how to develop it. We look at a stack of literary devices like metaphors, similes, foreshadowing, juxtaposition, breaking the fourth wall, all that good stuff. We also look at characterization, but at the sentence level. How do you characterize at the sentence level? We look at show, uh, don't tell. We look at dialogue and also characterization within dialogue. We look at mistakes to avoid, like filtering, taking action out of the present, repetition, lack of scene anchoring, to name but a few. We also go deep into description and how to do description, the how and whens of description, sentence rhythm, word choice, the impact it has on the quality of your prose. We also look at the senses and we look at how to create quotable prose. You know how you always see um, authors with quotes on their merchandise. We look at how you can do that. And last but by no means least, we do have a good deep dive into self-editing your prose specifically. So yeah, I mean, like I said, there are 123 some odd, 120 something uh, subchapters. So that is not a all-inclusive description of what's in the book. It's just a high level look. So yeah, it is launch day. You'd make me really happy if you went and brought a copy and yeah, let's get on with it. I'm not gonna talk about it anymore. In personal updates, this week was mixed, definitely mixed. I made a lot of progress on the Anatomy of Prose course, which I am developing. And then, I mean, honestly, I probably spent the rest of the time packing and doing childcare and speaking to lawyers and all of that good stuff. Um, I suppose the issue is I don't really feel like I got anything of substance done. Uh, I had a really interesting chat with my co-host on my other podcast, Next Level Authors, um, and Dan and I talked about 
uh, well, what our bare minimum was, but what, what came out of that was me realizing that I am my happiest when I have produced something creative. So whilst I may have days where I'm really busy and I am doing advertising or I'm getting through admin or marketing or whatever, those days are good, but I never feel like I've been productive. The only time I really feel like I've been productive is when I have created. And that doesn't necessarily mean words. Uh, I could have, like I said, I could have created part of my prose course, for example, but the biggest, happiest days are obviously the days where I write. So I do need to look at how I can reincorporate words every single day going forward. I mean, af obviously after I've moved house. Um, and on moving house, we should get a date this week, I think. I'm hoping, I thought it was going to come last week, but um, for whatever reason, it didn't. And so I'm hoping we will get a date this week. I'm still hopeful that we will move around the middle of June, uh, but we shall see. Um, anyway, if you would like to listen to that episode of Next Level Authors, then it is episode eight and I will leave links in the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast in real time, then this evening I'll be hosting a live Q&A to celebrate the launch of The Anatomy of Prose, 12 Steps to Sensational Sentences. If you would like to ask me anything about writing, marketing or publishing, or hey, unicorns, then drop your questions below. You can drop them in the blog, on the podcatchers, wherever you want, or, or in the Rebel Author Facebook group for that matter. So the live will be on the 29th of May at 9pm British time, 1pm uh, Pacific time, which I think is like LA, 4pm Eastern time, which is New York locations, or 6am Sydney time. And I will also put a link in the show notes to that. Okay, so the Rebel of the Week this week is Russell Phillips. Russell said, when I was 15, one particular day, my maths teacher set some homework. I spent the whole night trying to do it, with my elder sister helping. I couldn't do it, and handed in the next day, incomplete, Expecting to get a massive bollocking, the teacher had a reputation for being very strict. In the lesson, the teacher revealed that he hadn't told us yet how to solve that kind of problem, and he just wanted to see if any of us could work it out. What a bastard. After that, I never did his homework again. At the start of every lesson, he'd shout at me, demanding to know where my homework was. I'd say I'd forgotten it. He'd shout at me to do it next time. This went on for several weeks until apparently he gave up. I still didn't do his homework, but he stopped shouting at me. Actually, I did do his homework once. Honestly, I have no idea why. He didn't say anything when he handed it back. He just gave me an evil look. <laughs> I think this is brilliant. I have no idea how you got away without being in detention for like a year for that. Um, when I was at school, I was, well, I mean, I enjoyed the act of learning. I have always enjoyed learning. So I enjoyed doing the homework, but maths was the one subject I did not really enjoy doing the homework. And it used to result in tears almost every single week. Uh, so I can certainly appreciate not... <laughs> not doing your homework. Um, great rebellion. I love it. 
if you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your story it can be any kind of rebellion big small or somewhere in between you can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rebelauthorpod a huge bumper boost in patrons this week. Uh, I don't know what happened, but thank you all from the bottom of my heart. You not only made my week, but I will also announce something else in a second. So thank you to new patrons, Caitlin Duncan, Samurai Girl and Daniel Wilcox. Uh, you guys are all rebel patrons now and thanks to you guys, you tipped me over the very first patron goal. So as a result, I am going to be doing an exclusive Patreon-only Q&A, which will be live, and I will be answering all of your Patreon questions. So if you haven't already submitted your questions, make sure you send them to me, or you can uh, uh, tag me or comment in the, in the Patreon um, post. Also, a huge thank you to all of my current patrons. I really do appreciate the support. And I know I say it every single week, but it's because I mean it every single fucking week. So yes, thank you. A massive thank you from me. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the posts, content, sneak peeks, and, uh, well, going forward exclusive Q&As, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And that is Sasha with a C and not an S. Okay, let's get on with the show. And remember, if you would like to see all my ridiculous facial expressions, then it is time to head over to YouTube and check out my YouTube channel. And I will also link to that in the show notes. Hello, Rebels. To celebrate the launch of my brand new book, The Anatomy of Prose, 12 Steps to Sensational Sentences, I thought I would do a bonus podcast and YouTube episode. Without further ado, here are 10 tips to improve your prose. Tip number one. Don't filter. Filtering is one of the common mistakes I see in manuscripts when I do developmental edits. Usually you want your reader to look through the eyes of your protagonist, like the reader is wearing hero tinted spectacles. But when you filter, you as the author add in unnecessary narration. This causes the reader to be removed from behind the character's eyes and they're then stood to the side of the character watching the character do the action. Filter words include things like he heard, she saw, I felt, he thought. Here's an example. This one's with filtering. I heard an owl hooting in the trees and a moment later I saw the canopy leaves rustle as if replying. Readers don't need to read the word hear or saw because the action of hearing and seeing is implied in the description of the sound. So what does it look like without filtering? An owl hooted in the trees and a moment later, the canopy rustled as if replying. Now look, there are no rules. You don't have to remove every instance of filtering. And that's especially the case if removing the instance of filtering will change the meaning of your sentence. But if it doesn't, remove it. Tip number two, repetition. Repetition is an insidious little bitch. Everyone usually thinks repetition is just crutch words, but no, my darlings, it's so much more than that. Let's start with crutch words. Crutch words are words or phrases that you unintentionally repeat in your manuscripts. For example, just, but, so, look, glanced, etc. But there are many, many other more subtle forms of repetition. For example, different words, same meaning. Writers will often unintentionally use different words to describe the same thing or the same meaning. For example, describing cold temperatures multiple times with words like cool, icy, chilly. 
It's all the same thing. Describe it once, describe it well, then move the fuck on. Same words, different meaning. On the flip side of that repetition is using the same word in a different context. For example, the hum of a bee, and then the hum of a car's engine. Guys, we're writers. The thesaurus is your best friend. Use it. Duplicated archetypes. During one of your edits, make sure you check for multiple uses of the same archetype. For example, do you have two mentors? Are there an unnecessary number of allies? Of course, sometimes these duplications are needed, but more often than not, you can condense these duplications into one more effective, more efficient character that your readers will get to spend more time with and therefore feel like has more depth. Better to have one supercharged, steroid-injected mentor than three pitiful ones that nobody really gives a shit about. Duplicated personality traits. Look for duplications in personality type. Have you got two sarcastic divas? Or two brooding gentlemen? Or perhaps two mothers of villains? No, no you do not. I am the only mother of villains. The point is, do you really need two of that personality type? Or would one be more effective? Spoiler alert, one is most definitely more effective. Name, name, name. We all have biases, which is why you should always check your character names, pull them together into a nice pretty little list, check the names, see if you have any repetition. And I don't mean having two characters named Sally. What I mean is, if you have a Tony and a Tom, people are gonna get confused. Got a Natalie and Nancy? Who the fuck is Nancy? Nobody knows anyway. Check your names. Opening and closing of scenes. Check the opening and closing lines of all your scenes and do it in one go because it makes it easier to see the repetition. If you have four back-to-back -back scenes, all opening with dialogue or perhaps all opening with a description of the location, that's repetitive. Tip three. Don't forget the impact. Whenever you describe something new, like a new setting, a new character, most writers will just describe the obvious, what you're seeing. While the what of what a character sees is important to create imagery, it doesn't create the connection with the reader, and it certainly doesn't hook a reader throughout the rest of your story. What makes a reader connect is the emotion. But how can you convey emotion when you're describing a building? or a coffee, or someone's butt cheek. The quickest way to create emotion is to, yes, describe what the character is seeing, but more importantly, describe the impact it has on them. Does the smell of coffee make them feel sick? Or is it like oxygen? It's like oxygen, trust me. Perhaps it throws them back to childhood. Tell me, people, tell me why. The reader needs to know. Is a smell or a thing that they're seeing painful? Is it happy? Does it bring back memories? The reader really needs to know. Rather than describing the shape of the building that your protagonist is seeing, what about the emotional impact? Perhaps the way the shadows fall over the building give her a tingly tingle in her tummy. Perhaps walking home and seeing her home gives her a little, little flutter of anxiety. That's important. It gives your character depth. It also tells the reader stuff. And this goes for characters too. When introducing a new character, consider how that character makes your protagonist feel. The impact will say a thousand times more than the colour of your new character's eyes. Tip number four, don't forget the senses. While sight is the basis for description and storytelling, we writers often forget to include the other senses. Or when we do use them, we use them in isolation or in their more boring form, i.e. 
The smell of toast wafted through the living room. I like to compare the senses to creating a painting. A pencil sketch outline of your painting is like a normal sentence without the use of the senses. Nothing wrong with that shit. I kind of like pencil work. But when you pour the senses into your sentences, it's like creating a full colour mixed media piece of art. It breathes life into the masterpiece instead of just being monochrome. But how do you use the senses anyway? With the senses, think outside the box. For example, most people think of touch as just texture, things like rough or coarse or textured. But touch also includes things like temperature, vibrations, pleasure, pain. Consider describing other things like buildings or the weather. The weather has a texture. Ever experienced a bracing wind or the hot sun beating and scorching your arms? You could also describe the ground or the texture of skin or clothes or weapons and even emotions. I'm sure you've all experienced the hot throb of rage or the cold prickle of fear. Likewise with taste. How often have you tasted rage or the sour bitterness of jealousy. Well, what about tasting the weather? I'm sure you can all imagine the cold, crisp breath of first winter's air. Try to, I don't know, be creative. Tip five, drop the standard character descriptions. When introducing new characters to your story, most writers just describe the obvious. Their blue eyes, their brown hair, their short stature. When you finish a book, do you ever actually remember what colour that character's eyes were? Does anyone give a shit what hair colour they had? Or do you remember what they stood for? Do you remember how they made you feel? I thought so. There's a few tricks you can use to make sure your characters stand out to your reader. And eye colour ain't one of them. Now let me caveat this for a second. Yes, you do need to describe what a character looks like. But what makes a character more memorable are their quirky features. Take Sherlock Holmes. Does anyone actually know what colour eyes he had? And if there's one smart ass out there watching this telling me he had brown eyes, shut the fuck up, get back in your box. What we actually remember about Sherlock Holmes is that he was a pipe smoking genius. Or maybe you remember his suspicious fashion choices. Deerstalker hat, anyone? For each of your characters, do create a normal character description, but make sure you add one or two quirks. In Sherlock's example, he has a pipe, he wears Deerstalker hats, tweed, and he usually carries a magnifying glass. Instead of focusing on the normal details when you describe your characters, focus on the quirks instead. The reader's gonna find them more interesting, and they're more likely to remember your character. Tip number six anchor that shit. A lack of scene anchoring is one of the fastest ways to disengage a reader. But what is scene anchoring? Scene anchoring is the process of grounding a reader in three things. Time, space and point of view. Every time you open a new scene or chapter, your reader needs to know those three things in order to not feel like they've been thrown around a washing machine after having consumed a socially unacceptable amount of gin. Number one, who is telling the story? This is your point of view. If you write from multiple points of view, then this is even more important. You never know when your reader is going to have put down your book. If you suddenly flip point of views and don't make it obvious who's narrating, your reader's gonna get confused. And of course, if you write in first person point of view, then give yourself a pat on the back. You get to be a smug bastard. Number two, where are they? Are they in space? Are they amoebas stuck on the arse cheek of a cricket? Or are they in a fantasy castle? 
The reader needs to know. She's not psychic. This is even more important if your characters have moved between the last scene and the new scene. And last, but by no means least, when are they? Has an hour passed? Has no time passed? Has three years passed? Don't expect your readers to know. Be clear. Tell them. Tip seven, always strengthen your verbs. Here's the thing. Weak verbs are vague. And vague means your reader doesn't have a fucking clue what you're trying to say. Don't do that to your reader. It's rude. So what's a weak verb? Hit. Hit is a weak verb. What the fuck is a hit anyway? Is it a gentle tap? Is it a flirtatious nudge? Or is it a violent punch to the vagina? Tell me authors, what is it? Be specific. If it's a nudge, a nudge is softer. A nudge doesn't hurt. You can't nudge someone to death. And if you can, I'm impressed. The action of nudging is more specific than a hit. It describes the motion, the rhythm, the intensity of the movement. If it's a punch, that's also a stronger word. You can't punch someone by accident. If you punch someone, it's gonna hurt, especially if you punch them in the dick. So use strong verbs. They're more powerful, more specific, more impactful. Tip number eight, unusual details. One fast way to create characterization and depth is to ensure that your protagonist notices unusual details. Details that no other character would notice. But importantly, these details need to be connected to your character's personality type. For example, if you have a character who's super empathetic and that's one of their personality traits, then they ought to notice the subtle body language differences of other characters. This not only deepens your protagonist as a character, it also deepens the character that they're being empathetic towards. Got a protagonist with an eye for patterns? Then they should spot patterns throughout the story and especially a clue or pattern that leads them to finding the magical sword of destiny. Let your protagonist notice unusual details about people places and events. It's the nuances in their noticings, that's a word, that reveals their personality. Where one character will notice a sadness in another's eyes, a different protagonist might notice that a blade they usually carry is missing. Details people, the details matter. Tip number nine, differentiate the dialogue. Have you ever worried that all of your character's dialogue sounds the same? Well, it's probably because you haven't differentiated the dialogue. But how, Sasha, how do you differentiate dialogue? There are a stack of ways that you can differentiate. And here's some ideas. Think about your character's personality type. What traits can influence the way they speak? Got yourself a stuffy professor? Then have him or her use long stuffy words. Things like, however, furthermore, in addition, the definitive conclusion is, if you've got a gang member though, then you would have him or her use a lot of slang words. Got yourself a diva? Make sure they use sarcastic phrases and throw out verbal takedowns like it's candy on Halloween. It's all about your character's personality. When you know what that is, it becomes their voice and you can let it influence the dialogue that you're writing too. And tip number 10, avoid exposition. Exposition is a crude, dirty tool. Essentially, exposition occurs when you, the author, explain something to the reader. Ever heard of mansplaining? This is authorsplaining. Sure, sometimes we do need to expose or tell, because otherwise our manuscripts would be 778 billion pages long. And no matter how good you're writing, no reader wants to read a book that long. So when can you expose? And stop thinking about breasts, you dirty little heathen. I don't mean exposing yourself. 
And how can you tell when you've exposed in your stories? There are two easy ways of telling when you have exposed. The first is to spot your long, dense paragraphs of text. It's likely that you've overexposed in these paragraphs because they're so long. The other way is to find the paragraphs where you've taken the reader out of the present action. If, for example, you're in a spaceship racing towards a fight, and suddenly you're talking about the laws around alien government, you've probably exposed. You're in a race to a fight. Does anyone really give a shit about government law? I didn't think so. By doing that, you're taking the reader out of the present action to talk about something else. You're author-splaining. Stop that shit. So when is exposition allowed? Well, like I said, action scenes are a good time when you have to tell. Action is fast, you're punching, you're kicking, you're stabbing people in the eyeball. You don't want reams and reams of prose describing that. Sure, sometimes if your character's in pain, you might need to add a little sprinkling of pain description. But for the most part, action scenes are quick and pacey, which does mean telling or exposing. When there's a need for pace is another good example of when you might need to expose. Also shifting scenes. Especially if there's a time or location difference, you don't need to describe every single journey your character does. Younger protagonists too, Whilst they do obviously feel the same complex emotions that we adults do, they don't always have the vocabulary to describe it. And so younger protagonists will often say things like, I'm angry or I'm upset, rather than describing and showing the reader that that's how they feel. Keeping the reader's attention is another time. If you've had reams of dense dialogue or dense prose, then mix it up. Anytime there's complex world building, it's also sensible to do some telling. Of course, some of the world building does need to be shown, but you can, where there are overly complex concepts, tell or expose their explanations. And last but by no means least, avoiding narrative repetition. If you have a barman or a doctor, for example, you don't want to have 50,000 doctor scenes where your doctor is diagnosing an illness or when your barman is pouring a pint. Tell it once, we get the picture. So that's it, 10 quick tips to improve your prose. If you enjoyed these tips, then make sure you go and grab your copy of The Anatomy of Prose, 12 Steps to Sensational Sentences, because there's a whole lot of other tips in there. You can get it in your favorite bookstore, or you can order it through your local library. Why are you still here? Go order the book. Next week is back to normal scheduling and the normal interview format. And I am going to be speaking to Dakota Kraut. Dakota has managed to cultivate an insane fan base. So I grabbed him when I was at the self-publishing formula, Mark Dawson self-publishing formula conference and asked him if he would come on the show to talk about just that. So look forward to that next week and I will see you then. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.